Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Andy Farrell said when he was naming his team today that uh, he was very happy with the uh, winning his first match. He said, what a, what a good result. And he said he hadn't seen Scotland play that well in a long while. Um, and someone else phrased it to me as that was the game that Scotland should have played against us in the World Cup. Um, generally, I think... People were quite disappointed by the Irish performance. I certainly felt that way. How much of it do you think was down to a, a very good Scottish performance? And how well do you think actually Ireland played? I thought the Scots uh, did play well. Uh, I wouldn't say it was their best performance in a long time. They beat England a couple of seasons ago up in Murrayfield. They drew with England 38 all yeah, in Twickenham. La- last season, yeah. The so before they beat them. Yeah. Yeah, so... But it was a good performance from them. Uh, it certainly was the performance they would have liked to have put in on, on neutral territory. Uh, they changed six members of their pack. And I thought the key performers in in the game at the weekend were, um, most of them were forwards. I thought <clears throat> uh, Xander Ferguson was excellent. I thought Cummins was good. And Richie was good. Not as quite as good as he was against Japan. Uh, but still very effective. Um, so those three players are young, 23 and 24-ish. And Hayden, I thought, was an interesting character. He's a he's a big fella. He's I didn't know anything about him, I have to say. I, you know, I looked him up. Uh, not in the first flush of youth, but a big, robust competitor who caused us not massive problems, but he was certainly a presence. And I thought the Scottish pack were very abrasive throughout. Um, played you know, firmly in the grey areas of the laws, more so on the uh, verging over into the illegality. You don't mean necessarily anything brutal, but uh, the way that they really uh, hurt our mall in the second half, a lot of that was, was just outside the boundaries of the laws. So it was poor refereeing. It was very, very effective, though. They realised what they could get away with, and they got away with it. <clears throat> so yeah, they were they were impressive. But what did you think of how we played? I've thought I didn't think we applied enough pressure from my own point of view. So looking at it on the TV uh, from the recording, I was kind of surprised. I didn't remember us making that many breaks in the first half. I was quite impressed by the amount of line breaks that we that we made. Uh, we sort of determinedly went wide, wide, wide because when I was watching at the match and we were sat in the the upper south stands, we were sort of behind the play. We were watching that that vertical rather than horizontal perspective dash. Um, We seemed to play an awful lot in the middle of the pitch and we seemed to go side to side an awful lot without um, causing much distress uh, distress off, off nine in particular. You know, like we... It always seemed to be just one bloke hitting it up. There didn't seem to be... Like, if I think of what the way Saracens play and three guys run 
off the scrum half and any one of the three could get the ball and typically the well not typically but occasionally the third man is a distributor like occasionally Andy Good or Owen Farrell will run as the outside man in that attacking pod and that will completely give them a different shape so not that you have to ape uh, Saracens but you know, like it was, it was, it was often just one man static. Um, that was similar to the way that Ireland played under Joe Schmidt. There was a lot of box kicking that was similar to the way Ireland played under Joe Schmidt. Um, and there was no power plays. So, and we we're very rarely in their twenty-two. So I wasn't as disappointed with Ireland after watching the recording as I had been after watching the match because of the amount of line breaks. But at the same time. I wasn't sure just from one match how much of it I was I was kind of watching my own opinion. Like I expect Ireland under Farrell to repeat what I said last week to to take more risks, to not be as well organized, to have more downs and maybe occasionally higher ups, but not to have as high a level of performances as Joe Schmidt. Like I have to say that as well and all as as Scotland played um when Joe Schmidt was coaching Ireland, like we beat them 27-3 in the World Cup. You know, like we beat them last year in Murrayfield by by nine points. We beat them the year before that in Lansdowne Road by 20 points. We lost them the year before that in in Murrayfield. But, and then we beat them by 10 points, scoring 35. Sorry, beat them by 10 points, 35-25. So we beat them by 10 points, but scoring a bonus point, like get, getting the five points from the game. And that was... That was the caliber of performance that Schmidt's teams produced against Scotland. So to win generally, by generally generally getting bonus points, generally getting bonus points, like picking off the four tries. So to score one try to create very few other opportunities, particularly because we didn't have any pressure in the twenty-two, apart apart from like the try that we scored. I thought so. I thought we defended well, but there wasn't that level of cohesion and coherence that so like the. the the way that the Schmidt era is is portrayed, the way I interpret it in the media is that it was too conservative. It was that like too many shackles were imposed. I don't agree with it. Like I, I would have had obviously frust- like disappointment with the way that it ended in the World Cup and frustrations with the way that Schmidt kept on picking the same team. But like Farrell's kept on picking the same team that Schmidt had. And I also, like we won three championships, but we scored a lot of tries doing it. We scored more tries in 2018 uh, in the Six Nations than any side other than any side since England in 2001. Like we scored buckets of tries. So you know, as it just just to, to copper fasten your point, it was four tries in the World Cup. It was three tries in Murrayfield in 2019. It was four tries in Lansdowne Road in 2018. It was three tries in Murrayfield in 2017. It was four tries in Lansdowne Road in 2016. And it was one try this time. And it was one chance and one try. Uh, so that's that's disappointing. Um, I, I Like Farrell is, is, he, that, that's his first game in. I'd prefer to keep a relatively open mind. But that doesn't prohibit, like, pointing out that, you know, just because... Um, <clears throat> He's new doesn't mean he's doing anything new. Like we were a, a less effective version of the 2019 Joe Schmidt's side 
in, in that first game, which isn't, it's not that surprising. It's his first game in charge. But it's not like, oh, look, look at what I saw. I saw this and I saw that. You saw what you fucking wanted to see. If you're right that you saw green shoots about an attacking prowess because of one try we scored. We scored a try like that against France last year. You know, Johnny Sexton's first try, the second try that we scored. Dummy runners of Stockdale and Aki. The loop, Sexton looping off ring rolls. Hard inside line coming in outside to inside from Jordan Armour starting a fullback. Sex went round the right. It's not exactly the same try, but you're talking about a try scored in the 23 through deception, good handling, running from depth, and uh, a clean line, and animation. So saying that more. Who providing that they the, saw lots of green shoots? Well, a number of journalists. A number of journalists. Mo- most journalists that I've read talked about how this was the beginning of a different attacking platform than Joe Schmidt. It's the most similar attacking platform I've seen to Joe, to a Joe Schmidt team ever. And it, was, it wasn't the mood in the stadium. So around us, I think people were frustrated with the amount of box kicking um, in particular. Even like, to, to, just, just to go back to Schmidt against Scotland, to wind back, like Schmidt's first Six Nations match. So he took over... Les Kiss took the team to North America. Uh, Schmidt then had the three matches against Southern Hemisphere, Samoa, Australia, New Zealand. New Zealand famously beat us in the last minute. Uh, Schmidt's first Six Nations match was against Scotland in Lansdowne Road, and Ireland were 12-point favourites, won 28-6. So all, all the way through, like basically Ireland beat better teams, whereas Stuart Hogg dropped the ball over the line, um, which... You know, obviously changed the complexion of the match, but it would have made it much closer, even even had Ireland won. So that that's it's just it's it's that benchmark level of performance is lower. Yeah. Uh, on the subject of tries, uh, I texted someone during the game saying, <clears throat> sometime late in the second half, saying only scoring like not not taking a bonus point at home to Scotland is a concession of the championship, effectively. Like if you can't score four tries against the fifth best team, then you're not going to win the Grand Slam. You're not going to win the championship on points. Um, We took a lot of kicks to the corner, or we turned down a lot of kicks to the corner that I think in recent years we have taken a lot of um, and took uh, shots at goal in a very like, playing it like it was a test match where there was no bonus points at stake, which I thought was quite unusual. You see... Leinster kick a lot to the corner. I think nearly all the Irish provinces kick a lot to the corner to try and earn uh, mall tries or close-in pressure. But Ireland declined that. Um, and then it could be it could be related or it could not be. You said we made a lot of line breaks, but I, I felt like our continuity play after the line breaks was very poor. Uh, or like, not very poor, just like there, were, there was no pattern to it. Um, yeah. So... <clears throat> how do we expect to score tries if we take kicks at goal and we can't convert on line breaks? Yeah, and you, and you can't get into the 22. Like, the 22 is where you score all your tries from. So if you can get into the 22, preferably with a set piece, as you say, like, by kicking into the corner, you give yourself a much better opportunity of scoring tries. Like, people don't score tries from 50 or 60 yards out. I know I'm hostage to fortune saying that, but, like, look look at, look at where Wales tries... Will. <laughs> look at where tries are... Yeah, look at where tries are scored from, though, and you'd be amazed how many of them like have a first piece in the 22 would be amazed but like you'll see how many have a first phase in the 22 and how many of them have 
the last phase in the 22. So like people, there just aren't that many tries where the previous phase was 40 meters out and breaks are made and it's finished off. It, it just doesn't happen uh, all that often. Like not even at international level, like at club level, at top, at top club level, like uh, mm-hmm. it's just too hard. Like teams, teams scramble much better. They're too fit. They make effective tackles. They, they, they get in running lanes and they cut off passing options. It's, it's just harder. Um, what else? What about the place kicks? Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess as well. Like the other, the other thing that hit me again, the, the, the sort of the impression that I have of my cat. So, as I've said, I was I was surprised by the number of line breaks, and it was kind of encouraged that we made them a lot. Of, we made a lot of around Gary Ringrose, uh, either passing or or making breaks. And I, like I think Ringrose is our best back, um, and. The problem was we, we didn't make them elsewhere. So like the sort of the impression that I have of Cat is that like this is the way that he sees attacking rugby. Like attacking rugby is it's wide, it's everyone gets the ball, everyone passes it, it stretched the defense. And I think I think there's gotta be more than that. Like I I don't think at the top level of anything, one angle is is gonna do you. Like the people who are really good at things tend to be good at them in four or five different ways. Um such a chiropractor who had the most effective discussion you know like to, it's the sort of the it's the idea of to the man with the hammer every Everyone problem is a nail. nail yeah um whereas you need to be going at it with a toolbox like you need to be like a, as a really effective attacking team like you need to be able to break off nine and attack close in well that's what um, they're saying if you're if you're if the criticism of that stockdale and conway <clears throat> didn't get much ball against scotland because neither of them came looking for it. Conway was a huge part of his game was just chasing Conor Murray's box kicks. He's got two penalties out of it for him being obstructed. One by the 12, one by the two. Both times he's obstructed. Like, they were legitimate penalties. You know, he's a good chaser. Um, Stockdale, twice he got the ball, runs very well. But if the only, both of those times they were involved... When, when they were involved with any sort of level of success, it was, it was very wide out. Uh, if you have a blindside winger, and if he's just going to stay in the blindside for the rest of his life, you have to look at what you're doing there. You know, it's important that because you're behind the, uh, because you're behind the sticks, you're able to see exactly where the space is you know, on the horizontal across the pitch. Like there was often space on the inside of section, something which you don't often see from the camera angle. There was more space than I would have thought advisable in a Scottish defence. So but both their flankers are quick. They're not going to be as quick as a winger. So our blindside wing, I, th- I felt, should have constantly be coming in off his wing, offering that inside line for Sexton, just trailing him, trailing him all the and, time. And I think Stockdale, especially because he's so big, is uh, is really effective at that. Um, and I agree with you. If If we're only looking to get with all the time and that our close in game especially a game off nine is just going to be one out that's um a very ordinary looking attack and so not a threat i think the blindside wingers it struck me how often murray went down the blindside whether it was advisable or not and even after one good break went down the blindside and got picked off with an intercept and you know like getting picked off with an intercept on the blindside when the pitch is stretched they didn't score like hendy 
did really well in particular. Like a number of the Irish guys covered back. Stockdale covered back, made the initial tackle. But mm. it ended up like Henderson well into the well into the first half. Yeah, Hendo did really well. Like with, you know, 30-something, a serious 30-something minutes of, of international second row playing him. Managed to cover back. Very impressive cover tackle. Great work rate. Um, but like it's a real high-risk place to give away a try. And it just alleviated the pressure from Scott in the game. But you, you can imagine that the blindside wingers are standing out there because we want to attack the blindside because it stretches the pitch. Wide to wide, yeah. Wide to wide. You know, whereas I think Joe Schmidt's team, and this would be more taken up from having watched Squidge videos, never went into the 15. Like Schmidt's teams played very, nar very narrowly and then would release a move from the middle of the pitch to stretch it. But like basically just stayed in between the 15s. Um. So two of our line breaks were bad mistakes afterwards, directly afterwards. Uh, one of them was that nice, you mentioned Murray's intercept after Aki and, and Ringrose got in play sort of on the left of the middle. The other one was that Ringrose where he went wide, kept an offering, the putative uh, switch to Conway and then got round the corner and fed him back inside. So we'd made that all that ground. We're up at five meters from the line and we got call back for a piece of obstruction in the middle of the field by O'Mahony, um, which which the touch touch had spotted. And off that, like Hogg actually put in a 75 meter touch finder, which, and we, we wound up going from having the ball five meters or 10 meters in the Scottish line, in the top right to 10 meters from our own line in the bottom left. So those, some of those big line breaks were immediately flipped on their head and what benefit did we get from them? None. We couldn't stay in the Scottish 22. We couldn't exert pressure from there. So I guess, and you were saying this last week and it'd be one of the tropes that you'd return to is like the wins are, like it's all about results. Yeah. Really, you know, and like wins are what makes you popular, wins are what fills stadiums. It's not so much the style of play. So hopefully this is like the first, this is the building block and the game, the attacking game develops more. But it's difficult to see. Like it was it was very slow. Like Murray, Murray's being picked again. I think there was a lot of frustration at Murray. Uh, and just how slow he was, how many box kicks there were. And just in general, like he's it, it's just really slow. Whereas when Cooney came on, he, he couldn't have asked for more from him. So I think Murray's very I think Murray looks very short of confidence for, for a guy who was the best scrum half in the world not that long ago. And his Ireland's best ever scrum half. And his Ireland's best ever scrum half to being so pedestrian and... Super touchy, terrible body language. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel, and this is, I feel that like it would almost be a... Nah, he wouldn't see it as relief, but if he just gets dropped, he gets dropped. It's the worst thing. He thinks it's the worst thing that can happen to him, you know, in a, in a rugby career sense. You know, it's not. You're just dropped. You know, you're on the bench, you get off the bench next time, you'll probably play well. Now that you have an actual positive goal instead of, I want to play well so I don't get dropped. It's like, I want to play well so I'll get back in the team. And even kind of, I don't know if these guys have that much self-doubt where you kind of go, geez, do I deserve to be playing? But like Murray, like Murray must look at his performances and go, oh, like I'm, I know what it's like to play well and yeah. I'm not playing well. And I, I'm really taken with the, what you said, what you talked about in the podcast, given the profile of the players about picking a lot of experienced guys on the bench, not just to have experienced guys on the bench, but saying, well, the guys who are in better form just happen to have fewer caps, 
you know, because there's only so many international mm. matches going around. So I thought Robbie Henshaw played very well when he came on in the second half. And he was the one who saw where the space was. Yeah. And I, I, I think that bringing that off the bench is very ben- beneficial. So you sort of, like, I think to myself, if you bring Conor Murray off the bench, he's pro- he'll probably do really well. Yeah. But, like, for example, Keelan Doris got injured after four minutes. Who do you bring off the bench? Peter Manny. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think Peter Manny had, a, like, a blinding game. But I used to a hell of a good sub to bring on after four. If you're looking for somebody to go 76 minutes. Yeah. Like a guy who has been an Irish captain, has 60-odd caps. You know, that's a great sub to have. So you don't have Jack O'Donoghue or Max Deegan on the bench in that instance where Doris gets injured after four and you're going, oh, geez, like now one of these guys is going to have to play an entire test match when... Like he's just at a Six Nations. When is he? Is he? When is I didn't se- when it? I didn't select him to play when an I didn't entire select him test match. Play, like I selected him to play twenty five minutes or half yeah. an hour. Like just using that logic. So or ten minutes. You know, for Kelleher. Yeah. Like Kelleher got ten minutes. He came on at seventy minutes. That's a late sub for a front rower. Um, like imagine if he'd that was and that was obviously Farrell's plan. You know, there was no untoward injuries to uh, Robbie Herring, no temporary blood substances or anything like that. So he basically wanted to give him 10 minutes. Imagine if he'd had to come on after three or four minutes. Andrew uh, Porter came on against Italy two seasons ago after five minutes, played the whole game. That's a good point. Did really well. Did brilliantly. Started against Wales and the next day, didn't yeah. he? Um, good point. Um, a lot of the... A lot of commentary pre this tournament, certainly... About a, a lack of kind of whatever, for want of a better term, heads up rugby. Um, do you think Ireland were playing? You said there was no power plays. Do you think Ireland were playing with a, a slightly more improvisational style, a bit more of a yeah? Heads uh, up rugby means that nobody knows what you're going to do. Yeah, playing what's playing what's in front of you. So. Yeah. But like, just for example, Robbie Henshaw, you said he saw where the space was, and that was it, what brings to mind when you say that to me was the. Two grubber kicks, one off his left, one off his right, in behind. It's exactly in, what I'm talking in, about. In, in, in the five channel. Um, that uh, example you mentioned earlier on about Ringrose, on the on the one where was, there was a call for obstruction, where he ran the wide line around the outside centre, and it looked like, from our seats, it was like, why aren't you running the switch line? And then eventually Conway sort of copped onto it very late, but still, he still ran it. Um <clears throat> Uh, do you think that like those uh, make it up as you go along kind of rugby skills are dulled in the Irish team as a result of the way they played under Schmidt? No, I don't think so at all. No, I think good players are always going to, good players, like part of being a good player is making good decisions on the pitch. You know, whether you call that playing heads up rugby or playing what's in front of you, making good decisions on the pitch is all about it. Rugby's a team game. If you're going to be effective, you're going to have to be more than the sum of your parts rather than just the sum of your parts or less than the sum of your parts. The best way to be more than the sum of your parts is to be well organized, have a good idea of what you're trying to do together. So if something breaks down because it doesn't work, because of opposition good player, because of handling error, that you know what you're supposed to do together, not because of, oh, that didn't work. Now what's the next option? What, what am I supposed to do? You should know what you're supposed to do. I think certain things... Uh, certain tropes at the moment are overrated. 
I think that <clears throat> the idea that you always have to always have to seek out space, you know, running at spaces rather than faces. So yeah, for the most part, that's right. There's a massive need in uh, international rugby and all serious levels of rugby to win collisions, to get over the gain line. Those things can help you. Footwork and deception help you. They're there to help you get over the gain line. They're not there to make sure you never get fucking touched. Squidge talked about this in his PVAC video recently, uh, comparing PVAC's attack philosophy to Gatlin's attack philosophy and saying that PVAC's teams look to find space, whereas Gatlin's teams look to create space. And Gatlin's belief was based on the fact that at international level, all defences were good. They were all organised. All the guys that playing in them were good players. They were strong. Fit, they were committed. Strong. Yeah, like they were physical. That was the reason they were playing international rugby. And as usual, I found myself looking at it going, wow, he summed it up so succinctly and so comprehensively. It, you know, like, you know, what need is there to elaborate on it? And I think, I think just returning to that point, that idea of heads up rugby is a bit of a charlatan's phrase i mean i think it, it means like you said the people don't know what you're going to do there's so it doesn't mean that everything has to be really really structured you go back to that idea like the Stuart lancaster had this is one that's come one of these phrases that comfort and chaos eddie jones would talk about the game a lot being chaotic about the sort of the principles that you adhere to in your attacking shape um, and the mindset, but also the skills, the body language, like what you have to train to develop. So I'm a big fan of that. I've seen recently written um, about football, premiership football, about how well, I think this is about Mourinho in particular, how well organized defensively Mourinho's teams are, but how attackingly it's kind of like uh, you just like, pick the best attacking players that you can that will cover back and press and do all the defensive bits and they sort of find a way comparing that to Klopp and you 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 know you you talk about Liverpool playing like the same ball running the same shapes scoring pretty much the same goal as they scored three years ago in different instances and like they they practice move like attack moves like at, at the top level of football which you think is the most fluid the most play what's in front of your game now what the teams are doing is like practicing their unstructured, if you want to call it that, attack, their their general play attack. So this idea in a like just in a team game of of guys going rogue and playing renegades, I, I, I don't think I don't think it well, applies. You've coach, it you've coached be, yeah. teams for years and years and years. And yeah, like you wouldn't just just talk about like what. When people say play what's in front of you, what do you what do you think? I drop them. <laughs> like you just start going, oh, this is a disaster. I've got to try to because more often than not, certainly certainly at lower levels, a guy says it and is either slightly better than the players around him, but not as good as he's pretty slightly better than the players around him and not as good as he thinks he is. And it, more often than not, like it's just a license to do stupid shit, like to throw ill-judged passes like poor return passes whereas you have to encourage unit skills in terms in like in terms of attack so you have to get like groups of six guys kind of knowing where they're gonna go you know just about habits are running what happens if this what happens if like you can't make the offload like who, who's gonna who's gonna source that breakdown how quick can you make that breakdown who's gonna go into that nine distributor role if it's not the scrum half like who's who's gonna fall into first receiver and how do you recover your shape 
allowing so you've got to give yourself a range of options always looking to attack but having a sort of a fallback that if you know if the attack doesn't work out you've you, you've got to pick it up again as quickly as possible and then you've you've sort of got to know like well where, whereabouts in whereabouts in the pitch are we going to attack so we're like you know, drawing as simply as possible. Like, are we going to keep going the same way or are we going to get to a certain part of the pitch and then come back? Like that That's really, they're the two options you have. Mm-hmm. What was the name of that All Blacks out of half who got all the place kicks and holds the World Cup record? Simon Osborne? No, he's Japan. a fullback. Oh, uh, Mark Ellis? No, it's... it's, it's Simon Cohane. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's not, it's not saying that one... Like that, Culhane is is like the two extremes are Culhane and Carl Spencer. Spencer, right? But the guy who's in the middle is what you want to be like, which is Andrew Mertens, like who had the ability to make good on pitch decisions almost all the time, had a good handling set, was a brave tackler, excellent kicker, a little bit of pace. He's fast. Yeah. You know, to me, Carlos Spencer, when people say their favorite player is Carlos Spencer, I basically, my fucking inner monologue goes, you're going to say some stupid shit <laughs> about Ropey. Like, Carlos Spencer to me was like, obviously super talented, not like a really, like a, not a good All Blacks out half. Like, they've had the best out halves, and he wasn't one of them. Uh, on the subject of the All Blacks, I was going to mention them. Um, you had mentioned in uh, previous discussions we've had about how they had simplified their array of moves that they would do and they really pared them back. Yeah. Um, Doesn't that sort of feed into playing what you see, not being make it up as you go along, but being like there's a logic to how we play um, and if I notice that They've dropped an extra man back into the, you know, into backfield. the into the backfield. We look for the where the space is in the in the in the line. If we notice there's no one up in the backfield, we chip it over the top. But like someone has to make those decisions on the fly. So there there is, but as long as there's a logic to it, there is an element of yeah, playing the, what you see that, on the pitch. That, who who decides when you go back blind? Who 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 makes that call? Like, I was watching the 2000 Australia versus New Zealand Bledisloe game, the the greatest game. Greatest test match ever, maybe. And there's a bit where Australia score one of their tries, I think possibly the one to take them level in the second half, where they're attacking in the right-hand corner, and then they go blind on a medium-sized blind side, and there's six of them there, and they go through the hands and score. I think Jeremy Paul scores. I can't remember exactly. But it's like, it wasn't just like, Regan thinks I'll go blind. It's like, they'd obviously, they'd... Being a good player is being a good decision-maker. You know, but there's a lot of new, what you've said there, even you explained it very well, is that's a lot of nuance. It's not just like playing what you see is just this catch-all, which basically is so vague, it doesn't describe anything. So when people use you're going, this means fucking nothing to me. If you're in a situation, no, 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 let me finish. If you're in a situation, like as you see in some NFL films where Bill Belichick presents... He goes, what happens if this guy's back here? He'll say, in a, like a situational football, he calls it. What happens if this guy's back here? What happens if the safety is in line and drops deep? 
He's looking for the right answer. He's not just going, well, then I'll just play what I fucking see. He's just there going, then we'll go on, you know, throw an outrage or throw a screen to our, you know, our running back will split right and we'll give him to him and we'll run a screen there. That's a, There's a right and a wrong answer, you know, and it's a rugby intelligence thing. The idea that, I don't think that that's the same thing as just saying, oh, you play what you see in front of you. Heads up rugby. So I, I don't know how... I don't know how the Wallabies created that space in 2000. If I had to guess, I know that the Brumbies used to play an eight-channel attack. So if you think of the, like from the the touchline to the 15 on the left-hand side is A, and then from the 15 to the center of the post is B, Mm -hmm. and then the same is C and D, and then you go A1, A2, B1, B2. You you split the channel up on those eight, Mm -hmm. and you do it, whatever, do it that, tagging it that way or tagging it from A to H, um, and you then take your standoff, standing in a position where he can observe the pitch. Like, can he call two phases in advance? And he, he he doesn't call he's going to get the ball. He just, like, we're going to attack this part of the pitch. So you know, like, we're, we're going to go, you know, Delta, Cash, Apple. Mm-hmm. So you know it's going to be like D, C, and then we're going to go wide. And, and people know where to go. That That's one way of doing it. Um, funnily enough, I, I think of the the match against the Leinster match against Treviso last year, and like my my hero of the 2018-19 season. Oh, right. No, Reed was on the pitch, standing there, just directing traffic. Reader touched the ball once, and he, he was in such a rich vein of form, and he he just he just told he was like a shepherd. He just told the pack and the scrum half where to go, where to put the ball. Keep it in the 22, run down the clock, don't let them touch it. We'll stretch Treviso here and there. It was masterful. It really was. Like, I, I sort of, I, I sound like I'm jesting when I talk, like, profess my admiration for Noel Reid. But like, I think 2018-19 Noel Reid was one of the best attackers in Irish rugby of, of the last decade. He, he really, yeah, he was, he was in such an incredible vein of form. Um, he, he got injured shortly thereafter. He didn't finish the season as a, as a viable candidate for starting so are you gonna i was gonna say about eddie eddie jones he talks about his book about uh that they would try to maneuver to a third phase and then always attacking this is brumby's going back to like year 2000 99 2000 2001 uh so that third phase was was key post third phase then they would then they would go for a strike move they'd say let's move people around this is i suppose in the infancy of phase play they were saying, let's move people around and then we think we know how they're going to end up. It might be from a point to an inside point to an inside point, go back to the third one. You'd be, you'd have Joe Roth running a tight head or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's the trick. And that's what Larkham's teams were so good at. Like so often you'd see Larkham languidly or seemingly languidly strolling through a hole with the ball in two hands, like threatening to pass, but like just ghosting through it. And you look at the guys that he's running through and like it's a prop and a hooker. And you look at George Gregan sniping around the blind side in the 22. He's always, always running a front five forward. So that's the sort of behavior that you can coach where you can go, okay, we're going to put guys in vests in training. You can run at the guys in the vest. They, they can't actually, they're not allowed to tackle you. Whereas the other guys, like if they touch you, it's a rook. So if they come off the line hard and they touch you, you got to drop down. You, you've lost five meters. Whereas you, you run at the guys who have the vests. You go like, well, where are the guys with the vests? Go and find them. Mm. So you, you can you can coach that behavior, um, and perhaps perhaps that's what Ireland are are working towards. 
Well, I mean, to, to loop back around to my uh, original sort of insinuation is, is the team then, or does the team not have enough good rugby decision makers in it at the moment? It has like a lot of very good players, definitely. But does it have guys who are uh, all together, not, not on the same wavelength and making those decisions? When you see those kind of like, you see the amount of breaks squandered, you see his box kicking almost without box kicking as a kind of like default. We're like, well, this play is shit. So like, I'm just going to kick it up in the air. Well, and I, see I, I don't think they're necessarily like you don't, the best decision maker isn't always, uh, for example, like the fastest player or the most, sh- like I'm thinking really of, of Will Addison, who's injured as well at the moment. Like, I think Will Addison is a super decision maker. He's not conservative in, as a decision maker, but it, he's pretty wise like he does make some risky passes uh but i think overall he knows where space is likely to be and he backs his own ability to pull off side steps passes etc so i think he's uh i think he's missed in um in the team i'd like i'd like to see him at 15 uh i think that when the general view, which I don't think was wrong post rugby world cup was that the team needed to be selected on form that we needed a second distributor, uh, alongside Johnny Sexton. So that we could, so Sexton could run the line himself. He wouldn't always have to pass and be ready to go again so that we could attack on either side. And I don't, those, those views were, became to be sort of doggedly held. These were dogma. This is what the All Blacks are doing. This is what Ireland should be doing. I don't understand how the lessons that were written, written in stone, seemingly, after the Rugby World Cup aren't the lessons that anybody is pushing, you know, four months afterwards. No second distributor in, um, in the team at the moment. Not really picking up for making the same team as he as he picked before. I think there's validity to the idea that we have a second playmaker on the pitch. Yeah, Real validity. So other things that strike me about the amount of box kicking is that, particularly playing against Scotland, um, like Johnny Sexton shipped a few hits. Yeah, and that's true. Like they went looking for him a few times, and he didn't get much protection from the ref, even as, even as captain. So part of me sort they've of thinks... They've done that like multiple times. Yeah, they, and, they've, and they've done... They've, like, that's not the first time. Like, yeah. they, they go out and they know hit Sexton. And there's part of me that thinks, does Murray kick it because he doesn't hear anything from Sexton? And Sexton's just there going, I'm not taking this ball with two blokes running at me for me to kick it and, and me to get smashed. Yeah. So you think of uh, Entomac getting hit by ellis genge and you kind of look back at it and you go that was fair enough and that that's what happens if you're the out half particularly if you're the out half that's been told whose opposition like whose opposition have been told we're going to get this guy so i wonder about that like i wonder is conor murray kicking the ball because johnny sexton is just telling them well you kick or or by being silent is not kicking it the other bit about johnny sexton is that now that he's the captain i think everything went through him like everything always went through an out half and the joe schmidt team for any of the schmidt teams leinster or ireland that i watched and that man is sexton so Schmidt, 10, Sexton, and now Sexton is the captain. So he was the best player, and now he's like, maybe he still is the best player, although I'm after saying Gary Ringrose. I mean, probably, I think Ringrose is in better form. So 
is like, is there any chance for anybody else to get it? The third thing I'd say is that um, Jordan Larmer basically just played like Rob Carney at the weekend. Like he doesn't, his counterattacking is just Jordan Larmer running back and okay, he's more elusive. There's more of a scamper, but Carney was bigger. Like Carney would just, particularly with Schmidt, he, he was just told, just just run straight back as fast as you can. Yeah, get back to a ball. Just, just get back. Don't get turned over. Make as much vertical lineage as you're going to make and just, just run hard and make sure you recycle this ball quickly. Whereas, you know, so there, there, there's, Larmer doesn't get the ball and pass it to somebody else. He doesn't, like, he doesn't necessarily bring guys in with changes of direction. He doesn't change the direction with the pass and then loop around and find... And he doesn't play that sort of director stroke goalkeeper, the sweeper role, really. Like that you're you're telling the other two guys in your back three where the attack is going to be, how you're going to sh- shape that attack um, in the way that Ben Smith seem, always seemed to do playing for the Allbacks. Or, well, Ben Smith is the most obvious guy. He was the guy I watched in the most detail where you're going, God, like time after time, Schmidt creates this these opportunities uh for the all blacks to counter so again um it's very early days but that's an obvious one for ireland to improve on just watch this great possible play this shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hands have to give credit to the forwards um england promised withering physicality but France showed that if you can match them on that front, they don't have that much of a complicated game plan. Um, at the same time, I would say that France's second try, which took the game away from England quite drastically, definitely shouldn't have stood in my eyes. It was a knock-on. Mm. Um, and they showed some of the frailties that they, of your uh, conceding two tries in a row unanswered. Um However, they had a big enough lead, including that. <clears throat> Somewhat dodgy try. Uh, what are we... Do- I mean, I think ultimately we'll say it was a really impressive performance by France, but how much how much can we say they've really changed? Well, England didn't bring withering physicality or brutality, as they promised. Without the Vonopolis, their pack is uh, worse than you would expect for just for missing two players. Without Manu Tuolagi, uh, they are a significantly reduced side. Now, they went in without Anthony Watson as well. I think Furbank, the flying ace, was a, it was a disappointment to fullback. I think he'd be disappointed in his own play. I thought that the peculiar decision to start Yules ahead of George Cruz just turned out to be a bad decision. And I think that uh, picking Curry at eight rather than beloved dominator Dombrandt was the sort of wrong-headed decision that lessens Eddie Smith's... Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones, Smith and Jones. Lessens Eddie Jones' credibility with the English rugby public. It just looks like a wrong decision. People want to see him play. They recognise that he's played really well. And when Billy Vonopola isn't there, he's the best number eight in England. So picking a guy out of position and, and a guy who doesn't look like he's got, you know, what you'd recognise as the normal stature for a, an international number eight and 
insisting that you're moving from a position where he plays really well is is it a decision which hurt him? I, I can't reiterate and repeat that Manu Tuolagi point enough. <clears throat> like England's uh, semi-final win against New Zealand was predicated around Manu busting over gain line time after time after time, time in the, time in the two all-black centres. And part of their problem, um, along with the scrum, was that the South African defence, the South African backline coped with him, like met him and didn't allow him. He's, he's so important to England. Every, so often, like every strike move, England's basic shape is Manu crashes it over and Billy trucks it up. And then from that, all good things happen. Um, I thought Johnny May was, uh, was oh. outstanding. Like, I mean, he's he's really, really developed into... He looked like a brainless winger when he when he first started playing for Gloucester with the rat tail, and you're thinking, ah, oh, this guy will be gone. Like, by the time he's 26, he'll pull his hamstring, and he's like, he's just too stupid. Yeah, there's been you know, a half he's, dozen he's, guys like him Blisteringly before. quick, but nah, this isn't going to work out. And he's an absolutely top-class test winger. Like, the, the second try that he scored, I don't think anybody else. Like, Anthony Watson's really good, but Anthony Watson wouldn't have scored that try. Jack Knoll's really good. Jack Knoll wouldn't have scored that try. Like, very, very few people in test rugby would have scored that try. And he Teddy. did well to score the first one. Yeah, Teddy Thomas might have done. Yeah. But, I mean, you have to be exceptional and you have to be informed to score a try that good. So, looking at England, they scored two tries. They created other ones. But basically, like, they gave the ball to Johnny May and he scored the two of them. You know, so... And you, you do sort of come back to this about all the coaching and all the sort of the cohesion that you put in that, you know, there was no Liverpool way. There was just really good players. You know, that, that if, without Manu and Billy giving you gain line ball, like Eddie Jones' grand plan is just like so many other coaches. Like, you know, you're trying to crash yeah. the ball over with Jonathan Joseph. Not going to work. Like, he's not Manu Tuolagi. And Eddie knows this. Like, Eddie was referring to this about man who's an exceptional player and he, he can do things that others can't. So you have to find a different way of doing it. Um, and he didn't have access to, as you said, Jack Knoll or Anthony Watson or Slade. Uh, so he was he was shy a good few players who would have given England a much would, would have given England different options on a more potent cutting edge. Now England also hurt themselves uh, some of their midfield play from two guys who are you know really <clears throat> intelligent uh, and like more or less rugby geniuses. And Ford and Farrell wasn't wasn't great. Ben Youngs is is slipping and England are you know. Quite, if, if there is one position where they need an influx of of new blood, uh, it's it's at scrum half because at the moment, Young's getting replaced with Hines isn't scaring anybody. Yeah, Young's is probably a guy who um, the new occasionally gets frustrated. Um, I don't think he's a guy who drops the head or anything like that, but just. He's in the last two matches, which is the World Cup final and a match away in Paris, the Le Crunch, he's he's thrown passes into touch, directly into touch. And um I don't know, it's becoming a bit of a habit. Yeah, and for a scrum half of all people like who should have such excellent touch with a pass, you know, those are really grievous mistakes. If it was a prop, you think that's a weird coincidence. With a scrum half, you think something wrong there. But he's been so good for England so often. He's got so many caps. He's been around for so long. He's um, 
he's really good. I just I just bring it back to Manu. Like when Manu plays, they're on the front foot. And we were talking about this. This is one of the points that Ogara made about um, if the first two tackles are soak tackles or aren't dominant tackles. So like if, from a set piece, if the first two tackles aren't dominant, every phase thereafter, you'll soak. You'll, you'll just be going backwards. As, as the defensive team. So, like, you have to defend so well from first phase because if you don't, you're just you're just backwheeling all the time. And I think that's that's what England get from Tuolagi, um, is that front football all the time. And now they're in a situation, um, and, you know, you can only revert to cliche here, that people say the Six Nations is a... Is a momentum tournament where with two games within a week at the outset of the tournament, England are going from being uh, World Cup finalists and having put in the best display of 2019 to beat the All Blacks to now having lost in Paris, they have to go up to Murrayfield, which they lost in the last time against a Scotland team who are extremely physical and will, will just relish getting stick in and stuck into them. And I think... It's something of a free hit for Scotland because expectation in Scottish rugby is quite low. Like people, that's a bit like Ireland. Like your our expectation is probably a bit higher, but you know that if you really get stuck into England and make it awkward for them, and even if you don't win, like your your crowd will respond. So I, Scot- yeah. Scotland have that. I think Ireland are actually in a kind of different position where expectation is still quite high and the the team don't seem to be in that position to uh, swing to swing freely if you know what I mean to yeah, have the free I, do, I do know what you mean I think mm. expectation is high um, and I think partly and sorry to harp on on this but I think it's the, um, this is my truth anyway I think it's because uh, everyone from the IRFU review downwards just said world cup 2019 was joe schmidt's fault it was he was too hung up on the players and he put too much pressure on them and once we get rid of joe schmidt ireland will be back to playing like they did in 2018 under joe schmidt you know it wasn't all joe schmidt's fault yeah that's the key thing there's a player's this is an old hat thing, so I just I'm just going to say that's that's why I feel that uh, there's still a, a burden of expectation on some of those Irish players. Well, there's a burden of expectation on the French team as well going into that game, and they <clears throat> delivered um, a lot of new faces, a lot of Six Nations debutants, if not entirely Test match debutants, and they were uh, thrillingly exciting for the. It's really exciting the way that they were against Wales in the World Cup quarterfinal. It must be said, it was a very similar a, game. Ian. But with a but with a but with a much uh, a more determined second and, row and um, a much more determined second half and a much more kind of yeah, just like composed second half. I think. Funnily enough, I was the the two guys that really the three guys that stood out for me. Um, Dupont is young, so I thought Dupont oh. was outstanding. Um, but he, he's. He's experienced for a young guy. He played all of last year's Super Nations. He played all of the World Cup. Um, the two guys, other than him, that stood out for me from the French team were Fiku and Leroux, both of whom, like, certainly I did not think Fiku had that sort of rugby in him. Yeah, like, he was brilliant. Fiku was excellent. 
And LaRue was excellent. So yeah. my the reason I concentrate on those two guys is that when the French brought on more young guys, like they were really hanging on in the second half, whereas England brought on Cruz. And again, like I'll return to your idea of like of bringing off experience, like bringing experienced guys from the bench and like having the, the test match animals that it isn't necessarily that you just pick young guys and like everything looks after itself. It's that like you need guys who are capable of performing at that level and not everyone is. And that for France, because they've so many players, one of the keys is picking your team consistently rather than like the French actually have to get away from picking on form because, and you were talking exactly this, like, you know, the top 14, there's maybe four guys in each position who could conceivably play for France. Um, and if one of those four guys happens to be in good form, does he vault over the other one? And you got to sort of make a decision as the international selector that, okay, right now, like this guy from Breve is better than this guy from Cast, but I know that the guy from Cast is a better player. Like I know he's a higher ceiling. I know that he's like a higher floor. Uh, he's just not there right now. I'm going to pick and keep picking the guy from Cast. And he's going to be my international player. And over like 20-something tests, this is going to work out for me. Now, France have that. England have that. Ireland don't have that. Um, that's sort of the way that you have to approach it as the French coach. But like winning against England, and everyone, <laughs> you, you keep saying, everyone's kind of going, oh, it's a, better, it's a better tournament when France are good. And you're kind of going, yeah, it's a better tournament when France are good. Like until they're playing you in yeah. Paris during the springtime. Why do Irish like, people say this? We're playing we're playing France in Paris in the middle of March. Like this could go disastrously How wrong. How fucking weird and altruistic and non-serious about Irish rugby are you if you want fucking France to be good? Like, I feel like it was because they were our surrogate team to try and beat England when we were absolutely abysmal. <laughs> That's very profound. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> Um, the wild geese and everything inherited cultural memory yeah um, 1798 <laughs> they yeah so you, you, you I would think sorry yeah. I just want to say just to hop on your point like the French second row is made out of Valemsa and, and like, Rue who are both South Africans uh, one of whom was like Valemsa was really poor last year when he was in France yeah. and Rue was like blindside uh, and it's when I looked at that French pack at the start of the when at the when the credits rolled, I was there going, "Don't fancy the French pack," you know. I really don't. Uh, Poirot was great when he came on; should have started. Marchand is very good. I like Marchand. Uh, Was not sold on. They've got quite a lot of props. Uh, Slamani seems to have got the chop, but Gomez Saz there, but. I'm sorry I'm doing my Joe Schmidt thing there just going through all the players I just didn't fancy that French front or front five but in fairness to them what they had was a, a competitive edge they were very they got stuck into everything now when when they changed the second row and when they changed the back row bit and brought on Wokey and Palu their scrum went arseways you know that depth isn't there their backline is very exciting. But they can pick Vahamina again, can't they? If they trust him. He, I don't <laughs> I think he has I think he's crossed the Rubicon backwards. 
He's with, reversed over the Rubicon. With a dirty, yeah. with a dirty bib on. And he <laughs> dirtied his bib while pissing in the soup. I don't think, I think that some things are too big to come back from. And as you know, I've always actually been quite a fan of Amahina. I think as a, as a physical specimen, he's, he had all the tools to be uh, top three second row in the world. Uh, but I don't think you can come back from that. I don't think you can come back from it at all. Uh, and I'm not just saying in the French rugby public mind, I think in his own mind, I know he's back playing when he said he had, was going to retire, but I think he's, I don't think he'd ever play for, for France again. Uh, they can pick Taufa Fanua, mm. who is also large, a huge man. Um, and, and, and there are so many players, like there's so many players in France, they'll turn up another second row in the under twenties. Uh, and they could, or they could go back to Jadresiak from Claremont, who still isn't that old. Like he's just yeah. been playing a long time. So second row is, is uh, like Lambie isn't the answer. As good a player as Lambie is, he's actual. He's an actually he's actually a super rugby player, but he's he's just too small to play in the second row. So that's a position of need for them. I don't think any of the front row positions are a position of need. I think they're going to get good in the front row. Poirot's already good. Marchand's already good. This Uas fella, George Sulaitanum, he's very young. Um, back row, I'm delighted. You know, you know my fondness for Olivon going back to having seen him play for Bayonne before. Delighted to see him. Uh, to see him captain France, flog a load of jeans. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and score two tries against England. Your first day as captain. Like, that, I am delighted for him. I think that's that's going to be such a great memory to have, you know, for the rest of your life. It's brilliant. Like Wenceslas Laurie has done nothing wrong. Wenceslas has been a really good player. Closest, you know, good. Aldridge was very good one man in the match. I still don't think they're going to settle on that back row. I don't think that's a given because there's your man to come through from the 20s. They're oh. a fucking tank. It's not Jonathan Joseph. It's something JJ though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's an animal, uh, and Cameron Wokey was probably going to turn out to be a super player, but uh, he he looked under underwhelming in his on his his first Six Nations try out there. You said it's a tournament about momentum. Um, when who's going to stop France? Wales, Wales. It's the, in Wales. It's in Cardiff, isn't it? Yeah, you know that's. A, like Wales are looking good um, Italy are looking shit yeah. like really as bad as they have ever been but Wales are looking for a team who had a coach for such a long time to transfer their coach in their first game win in the Six Nations 42-0 to nil aside that's really impressive like and you know, Wales are not dealing from the full deck yet. Like they still have a couple of um this have a couple of significant injuries. They don't build them like that anymore. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out. Now it's our weekly segment where we pontificate about the fantasy Ireland manager role. You've got a candidate in mind now. I've been I've been <laughs> obsessing about this. I was gonna say thinking about this. Obsessing. 
trying to think of the criteria that I'd have to have. And I'd, I'd sort of, I'd drawn up a short list, all of guys who were in jobs. So I had like Mike Ruddock, Declan Kidney and Jeremy Davison, raw guys who had sufficient uh, gravitas, gray hair, coaching experience, like rugby nouse to do the job. And I was sort of going, yeah. But and all, personality. And personality, but like they're all employed elsewhere. So I was there going like, right, I want somebody who's, ideally I want somebody who's been an international and a coach. Um, they're the sort of criteria. So I want somebody who knows rugby from both sides of the line, somebody who knows what it's like to be in an international camp. Um, and A communicator. A, a communicator. And I was getting out of the lift in work. And I was amazed to see him in front of me. And as soon as I did, I went, Bernard Jackman should be the Ireland team manager. He's an international in the front row. He's coached in France. He's coached in Wales. He's coached in Ireland. Um, yeah. He has, um, and he works in the media and he's good. He's really, really good in the media. Good. So you, you got a guy like, you know how the media knows how the media operates. Obviously knows how rugby operates. Um, he's really personable. I when think, you meet him. I think, he, I think he'd be a, like, to my mind, I, I can't think of anybody who would be better. Dan Birch. Well, you know what I want? I was already said this to you. Nordy Hardman, former Irish captain, Paddy Johns, who I thought was, he was captain when Ireland were really bad. Um, he's a really serious, he's a serious guy. Like he's a brave guy. He's, he was captain of the Dungannon team that won the AAL. Uh, he's as hard as nails, that famous 1996 um, Battle of... Was it in Port Elizabeth? Pretoria. Battle, Battle of Pretoria, right. Yeah. I think it was. Battle of yeah. Montfontaine, actually. You know, just this absolutely massive punch-up with the Springboks. When I say a massive punch-up, the whole game was a fight. He was the one sticking it into on, on Ireland's behalf. Uh, very fit and has the gravitas that you need. He's not, I don't know what he's like as a communicator, but in terms of a sounding board, he's a serious. He works at dentist though. Like, aren't he's dentists, a dentist. Like, yeah, aren't yeah, yeah. Most, of, like, your, most of your clients are knocked out when you're a dentist. Like, you don't, or their mouths are full so they can't talk back to yeah. you. So I, I, like just, you know, genuinely. Yeah. And then he hasn't had any experience of international like the, the, the other guys are like david humphreys and Connor o'shea both of like jobs jobs mm. so you're rugby jobs where like rugby jobs yeah. you know like i assume paddy johns would love to get out of the dentist chair and manage Ireland for a couple of years yeah perhaps he would i just think that the the lack of experience of professional yeah. rugby would count like andy ward now would be another guy like ward has obviously international and media experience um, one european cup on his own more Pretty less. much, <laughs> and like knows a shitload about rugby. I think he he'd be another guy. Um, but I go back to it, like I really think it's, I think it's a really important role. I'm, yeah, just I absolutely agree with you. Well, the I like with, uh, England as well. I I don't know. There's something about the Nordies. I have a lot of faith in them. Uh, I've I also will be my my second team out of out of the provincial teams, and I I like the way that uh. I think there's a real seriousness about them. They're, they're like, these two lads, I'd say, have a good sense of humor. I know Ringland does, but they're serious and they're not plumb 
they're not um, they're not jokers. They're serious about their own rugby. They don't necessarily want to row in with the general mood of things. They'll tell you a straight truth. So I, I would be sort of a those would be the those would be the sort of guys. I know that we we've talked about this previously, and we'll talk about it again. The cloud didn't like that. Ireland take on Wales Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Ireland take on Wales. In the polls. Saturday lunchtime. Um, on polling day. Um, we, ha- we have such a good record at home in the Six Nations. Uh, under Schmidt, it must be said. But even under under Kidney, the rec- record at home was, was obviously pretty good. We have got off to a winning start uh, against a good Scottish performance as Andy Farrell would have us um, know. But I can't see us winning against Wales. I'm the same. I'm pretty pessimistic about it. Uh, Wales were far more impressive than we were in the opening week. Uh, We've played them twice recently, beaten them both times. Very different circumstances. Those World Cup warm-up matches aren't competitive test matches. They're They're the only games in the season which aren't test matches. They're definitely warm-ups. I was over in Cardiff for when Wales whipped us stupid in uh, in the last game of the Six Nations for us. A terrible performance from Ireland. I don't think we're going to be... I don't think there's that has any particular relevancy, the upcoming fixture, but it certainly is stuck in the back of my head and there's a lot of the same players involved. So maybe the Irish team will go out wanting to right that wrong. But if they're putting the 2019 behind them, you know, it seems like they're not carrying that baggage around. You know, all the 2019 Zills have been cast aside with Joe Smith. No, but not by the, not by the players. Like Sexton already talked about sleepless nights following the World Cup and constantly thinking about it. What went wrong? I, I don't think that's... Uh, that's realistic. Uh, I think that they're going to put in a big performance, but I'm not sure uh, if if they are going to play well enough to beat Wales. Yeah, I'd 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 be the same. Um, immediately after the Scotland match, I was worried about the Welsh match. I think it's a a far truer test of of Farrell's Irish team I think that um the sort of the misgivings you'd have particularly about Conor Murray and just the pace of the play from the pace of play really you know which comes down to the tempo which is dictated by the scrum half um <clears throat> is going to be put in relief I think the the lack of pressure like all the things we talked about earlier um and the Welsh, the difference between Wales and Scotland is Wales will come looking to win, whereas Scotland were coming looking to make life awkward for us, not really, like not really expecting to win. Um, like one of the, you know, you referred to it very fleetingly. The, the Scottish team had six changes in the pack. When you look at Scottish teams down through the years, they're in constant flux. Like there's there's a few there's a few guys who are there. Johnny Gray is always there. Uh, Laidlaw is always there he's obviously gone uh, Hogg is always there Finn Russell is there an awful lot and around that everything else changes so you get like Seymour and Maitland being picked for a while 
But <laughs> so like so often like their their tight heads change, their hookers change. Like McAnally was their captain last year, and now he's now he's not there. Dropped during the tournament. Yeah, and now he's like now he's not there. Like you know, Hamish Watson used. Oh, I think Hamish Watson. You go no, no, no. Like Richie was their open side for pretty much all the last season. So the reason I'm saying that is you compare that to the Welsh team, and you go, there's a few constants in the Welsh team who are always, and the, 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 there's more. Like it's Alan Jones. Ken has there been there for a decade. Ken Owens been there for a decade. Uh, Tipperick has been on and off with Warby, but now like now he is nailed on. Like Falatau has been there at the top of the game for a decade. George North. George North. Lee Halfpenny. Uh Johnny Davies is injured. Uh Liam Williams is injured. But like you know, like Wales have so you're sort of going, well, obviously these two guys aren't playing if they're injured. But like Wales have particularly with Gaddy playing, with Coke picking the team. Like absolute test class, test caliber, like world class players, and um, like Lee Halfpenny, like Lee Halfpenny's in that number, but he wouldn't be playing if Liam Williams is fit. Mm. But he's still one of those sort of guys who's been around for ten years as like a Lions Test Series player, as like a Six Nations point scorer. Um, so ah, they're like they're he could legitimately—he is at one stage of his career probably the best fullback in the world. When he played for the Lions against Australia, like that was, he was at the absolute peak of the game in world rugby. He was amazing. Mm. Is and it f- when Jones is f- tightening the game, Falatau, one as we always say, what a, what a beloved player he is of the moment. We love him. He's an amazing player. Tipperich, scarcely less so. You know, they're, these guys are such, they're such a big ask. The thing which really interested me is that Wales nilled Italy. There are very few nillings in uh, the Six Nations. There's always pride on the line. This is a Wales that have, don't have Sean Edwards anymore. Wales won last season's Grand Slam on the back of their defence. They didn't play a huge amount of attacking rugby. They didn't score a lot of tries. Doesn't look like their defence has gone away. Um, is it fair to say Wales are the most club-like of any national team and given that uh, cohesiveness of personnel and basically the fact that they don't give a shit about their club sides, uh, they are the ones who are most able to adapt to uh, a change in tactics in a way that a club side might by comparison to an, uh, like other international sides who have much more disparate selection, although Ireland are obviously quite constant as well, but come from... No, I think you're right. And I think it's... Uh not something I considered before, but and as you said, it, it, you make a very good point. Uh, it's their absolutely their the priority of every player in the Welsh side is Wales, unquestionable priority. Yeah, uh, we referred to it last week about how little rugby the players of the Welsh players have played for their province this season or their regions since coming back from the World Cup. Like just how late they were coming back, how. I think as well, it's not just tactically, it's, it's uh, physically, like uh, particularly under Gatland's, and she's Gaddy was there for so long, how how physically well prepared they were and how like ruthless they were at SNC at peaking for different times and kind of like, you know, the rest of the season be damned. Uh, don't care if you're going back to your regions. And you look at the way that Gaddy picks his Lions teams, he's all about the test team. Like he, he has his mm. mind made up about what he's going to do. There's very few grey areas. 
and he doesn't really give a shit. And to that end, I've lost a lot of interest in the Lions under his stewardship. Um, because I like to see guys who are playing well on tour rewarded. Um, I think it, like they're all good players, the guys who are going on that. You're actually better off picking a forward. I think it's a completely different conversation, but like that's been successful for him. That's the way he thinks. His Wasps team were the first team I can remember that did that sort of periodization and absolutely targeted a time of the season when they were going to be at their peak and were prepared to sacrifice other games. Like They were prepared to qualify in sixth or something in the league, knowing that come May, they'd be the fittest team. That, that, was, that was all under him. Mm. What I'm most uh, <clears throat> scared of is uh, the potential backlash when a Wales, the Wales team... Uh, having adopted PVAC's sort of like much more um, attractive style than say Gatlin's um, runs in tries by like flashy back play and you have this thing where Ireland not only lose but everyone's like why can't we be like them no I'm, I don't think it'll be that sort of match um, I think it's going to be a really physically really tough match but Wales will be very very confident and we still don't have much confidence and that's what gives them that's what makes me believe that they will have an edge over us because we keep on picking unconfident out of form players in key positions like Conor Murray well, that's, rather than the form out half in scrum half in Europe part of the is, reason that is part of it but there's um, you know if, if I knew what the answer was I would say it. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think, like, I, I don't think Conor Murray should start, but I don't think he's the root of all evil either. You know, I, I, um, I think it's a, it's a f- very familiar looking Irish team. Uh, but I think if, if that's the team that Andy Farrell thinks is, gives him the best chance of winning, he's, he's the head coach, you know, he's a guy who has seen those players up close. Uh, the fact that, it's the same team as, you know, sort of minimal changes as was played in, in last year. It's sort of <clears throat> like it's a little bit boring, but boring doesn't come into it if you win. Like if he thinks that's the team that's going to win, that's what he's there to do is get the win. Plevin Morgan stepped into touch in 1966. I did it for Wales. 